If you don't test, you don't have any cases. If we stop testing right now, we'd have very few cases, if any. Well, that sounds medically sound. Let's do that. Good idea. Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. That's why. I got the feeling that something right. It is not. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Clowns to the left of me. Jokers to the right. Here I am, stuck in the middle with you. Yes, sir. Yes, I'm stuck in the middle. From Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is The Bradcast, as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in L.A., up in uh, Red Bluff and Redding, California, on KFOI, Round Mountains, KKRN, and Eureka's KGOE, in Oregon on the Central Coast on KYAQ, Cottage Grove's KSO, and Eugene's KEPW, in Lancaster, Pennsylvania on WLRI, Maui, Hawaii's KAKU, in Columbus, Ohio on WGRN, Palinville, New York's WLPP. In Grand Rapids on WPRR, down in New Orleans on WHIV, Gallup, New Mexico's KNIZ, Concord, New Hampshire's WNHN, Fayetteville, Arkansas's KPSQ, in Seattle on KODX, Janesville, Wisconsin's WADR, and Minneapolis, St. Paul's AM 950 KTNF. We also stream coast-to-coast and around the globe on the internets, even when people should be staying at home. On the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Radio for Humans, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, Workforce Rising, Deprogrammed Radio, and Detour Talk, Blanketing Planet Earth five days a week. I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, and all-around swell fellow, says me from bradblog.com. Thank you very much for joining us today. Vice President Mike Pence applauded Oklahoma on Tuesday for what he called a, quote, tremendous amount of progress in battling the coronavirus pandemic and slowing the spread of the virus in the state. We're seeing across the board in the country hospitalizations are declining, fatalities are declining, Pence told Fox and Friends in an interview on Tuesday that addressed concerns about the risks of spreading the virus at large political gatherings. As Tulsa was announced last week as the first stop for the Trump campaign kickoff uh, of a fresh stream of re-election rallies since the novel coronavirus pandemic hit. But data points show a spike in COVID-19 cases in the Sooner State, where President Trump is scheduled to hold a rally this weekend. The Oklahoma State Department of Health reported the highest single-day increase in cases for Oklahoma on Saturday. By Monday, it was reported that Oklahoma saw a 7.7% increase in cases. That is the highest in the U.S., The news reported by Yahoo, citing an internal document from the Federal Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, or CDC, came after Mike Pence, who will attend the rally with Trump on Saturday, falsely claimed that, quote, in a very real sense, Oklahoma had, quote, flattened the curve of new COVID-19 infections. Tulsa where Trump plans to hold his rally in Oklahoma, also witnessed the single the city's single highest increase in newly reported COVID-19 cases over the weekend. Tulsa's chief public health officer and the Tulsa World newspaper have called on Trump to cancel the rally. 
Bruce Dart, the director of the Tulsa City County Health Department, wishes Donald Trump would reconsider his plan to hold a campaign rally in the city this weekend, telling the Tulsa World, quote, I wish we could postpone this to a time when the virus isn't as large a concern as it is today, telling the paper uh, that he is particularly concerned for the city because COVID-19, quote, is transmitting very efficiently. He added that it's an honor for Tulsa to have a sitting president want to come and visit our community, but not during a pandemic. And he said he was concerned about the city's, quote, ability to protect anyone who attends a large indoor event, adding that he's also concerned about our ability to ensure the president stays safe as well. Dart is hardly the only health expert to express concern about Trump's rally. Dr. Ashish Jha, the director of Harvard's Global Health Institute, said the rally amounted to a, quote, extraordinarily dangerous move, not just for the people who will attend, but also for the people who may know them and love them and see them afterwards. According to a Reuters analysis, new cases in Oklahoma rose 68 percent in the second week of June, while the rate of positive tests, in other words, the percentage of tests coming back positive, is also increasing. It is not just increasing in the number of tests. That's not what's leading to the increased number of confirmed infections in Oklahoma. And yet, on Fox News, the most watched cable news channel, Pence singled out the state of Oklahoma for demonstrating a, quote, tremendous amount of progress, which he said was a tribute to the people of Oklahoma who have put the health of their neighbors first. Oklahoma's Re Republican governor, Kevin Stitt, who backs the president's visit to his state, attributes rising cases in his state to increased testing. That public lie by the governor is almost certainly no accident. Behind the scenes, the vice president, who presumably is still in charge of the White House Coronavirus Task Force, if it still exists, made clear that comments like his and the uh, Governor Stitz are part of the administration's political strategy to try and win re-election this year. During a phone call with governors on Monday, Pence encouraged governors to adopt the administration's explanation that a rise in testing was the real reason behind the new coronavirus outbreaks, even though testing data has shown that such a claim is misleading. I would just encourage you all, he said, as we talk about these things, to make sure and continue to explain to your citizens the magnitude of increase in testing. Pence said on the call with the governors, audio of which was obtained by The New York Times, and that in most of the cases we are seeing some marginal rise in numbers. That's more a result of the extraordinary work you're doing. In other words, because more testing is being done, more positive cases are being confirmed. But the data appear to show otherwise, at least in many states that I have seen, where it is the percentage of positive tests coming back that are increasing, whether the number of tests themselves are being increased or not. As we reported in some detail on yesterday's broadcast, it is not just the percentage rate of positive tests that is increasing either. It's also hospitalizations in many areas of the country that is now on the rise, as in Texas, where hospitalizations have hit day over day records, day in and day out, each day over the past week and through the weekend. Pence appeared to lie about that as well when speaking to the governors, who he told, quote, 
Encourage people with the news that we are safely reopening the country. That as we speak today, people, uh, because people are going back to hospitals and elective surgery and getting ordinary care, hospitalization rates may be going up. But according to our most current information, hospitalizations for coronavirus are going down, he said, across the country. But the hospitalization rates that have epidemiologists most concerned across the country are actually increased hospitalizations for COVID-19 illness, not for elective surgery. And while overall hospitalizations may for now be on a decline if you include the huge falling numbers in the New York metropolitan area that was earliest hit, numbers in dozens of states elsewhere are on the upswing since many of them have reopened for business in recent weeks. It was, as the Times described it, a misleading message publicly emphasized not just by Vice President Pence, but also by President Trump himself at a meeting earlier in the day on Monday, if he did so somewhat less artfully. Again, our testing is so far advanced, it's so much bigger and better than any other country that we're going to have more cases. We're always going to have more cases. And as I said this morning, that's probably the downside of having good testing is you find a lot of cases that other countries who don't even test don't have. If you don't test, you don't have any cases. If we stop testing right now, we'd have very few cases, if any. <laughs> cool. And if we stopped calling you President Trump, would you no longer be the president? Because I'm willing to give it a try. In fact, in at least 14 states, positive cases have outstripped the average number of tests that have been administered, according to an analysis of data collected by The New York Times. As we noted yesterday, some cities in Florida are now reclosing bars and restaurants following a spike in cases after recently reopening for business. One of those Florida cities where businesses are closing again is Jacksonville, where the Republican National Committee has moved their nominating convention to this summer after pulling it out of North Carolina, where, despite surging cases there, Trump had insisted he be allowed to bring together thousands into the Spectrum Center to stand shoulder to shoulder for his super-spreading nominating convention planned for August. In Oregon, Democratic Governor Kate Brown is pausing her reopening strategy, and the city of Houston is considering reinstituting their lockdown. Other local officials have delayed reopening plans, and one month after opening up, the state of Arizona has become one of the country's top COVID-19 hotspots. TPM's Josh Kavinsky reported on Friday, the day that the state hit its single-day record in case growth. Case growth along with a reported total caseload increase of 76% since May 28, just about, what, two weeks ago. The unhindered growth in cases in the state has sparked concerns that the uh, hospital capacity there will be overwhelmed, with major hospital networks in the state publicly saying that they could see the ICU beds full in the span of a few weeks if case growth continues unabated. Since the state's stay-at-home directive ended on May 15, Arizonans have largely lived without mandates to socially distance or even wear masks when in public. 
When the stay-at-home order ended, the governor didn't put any criteria for enforcement, compliance, or expectations on businesses that were enforceable whatsoever, according to Will Humble, the director of the Arizona Public Health Association and a former head of the state's Department of Health Service. Banner Health, a hospital chain with, uh, chain with a large uh, Arizona presence, said recently that its hospitals were nearing capacity. Eighty-four percent of the state's ICU beds were occupied by last week. In Phoenix, it was higher. It was near 90 percent. Humble told TPM that the current outbreak first began to show up in earnest between May 25 and 26, that's 10 days after the stay-at-home order had come to an end in the state, he added that those 10 days represent one incubation period plus testing delays after the end of the stay-at-home order. He says that is the inflection point. He went on to say that cases began to increase at an even higher rate in the week following Memorial Day, describing the holiday weekend as, quote, throwing gas on the fire. Nonetheless, the state continues to lack both extensive testing or contact tracing, making it difficult to ascertain the true scale of the outbreak and to contain it, according to Purnima Marivanen. She's a, an associate professor at the University of Arizona's College of Public Health. Those people that are exposed are going to go on living their lives, said Marivanen. You're going to see they become infectious to others around them before they're symptomatic. State officials seem to simply be giving up, with the state health director in Arizona, uh, Kara Christ, saying at a Thursday press conference that, quote, we are not going to be able to stop the spread, but we can't stop living as well. Republican Governor Doug Ducey, who abruptly announced reopening plans early last month on the same day as a visit from Donald Trump, has downplayed the idea that the state was even nearing capacity in its hospital, saying that, quote, we are not in a crisis situation, adding that field hospitals could just pick up the burden if needed. Though Humble, the state's former health director, notes that when you rely on field hospitals in a crisis situation, Quote, you don't get the same care in contingency or crisis mode. And that's not just in the field hospitals. That's everywhere. I've noted on this program repeatedly that while some have a political interest in pretending the crisis away, that doesn't actually make it go away. There is still no miracle treatment, no cure, no vaccine. And that opening up right now, as we seem to be doing across the country and frankly in many so-called red states and blue states alike, is all not very different than we had uh, when we did do the lockdowns back in March and April. The virus is still just as ready to spread at just the same rate that it has from the beginning. Then again... I'm just a guy who reads science and facts and tries to make sense of it all. I am certainly not an epidemiologist, so what do I know? Joining us now is an actual epidemiologist who knows a lot more than I do. Dr. Purnima Madivan, who I quoted in that TPM story, is an infectious disease epidemiologist and associate professor in health promotion science at the Mel and Enid, at the Mel and Enid Zuckerman College of Public Health at University of Arizona, Tucson, where she is the director of the Global Health Training Program. Dr. Madi Vanen, uh, thank you for joining us on the broadcast today. 
Thank you, Brad. Thank you for having me. You bet. My uh, my friend uh, David Dayan over at the American Prospect recently cited the old analogy of the five blind men examining different parts of an element uh, of an elephant and and each describing a different animal uh, based on which part that they were touching. Uh, he compared that to the way that many are citing coronavirus statistics, uh, arguing that you can sort of cherry pick to take anything you want from them to make whatever case you want. I don't want to do that, but I am focusing on what seems to be the real trajectory of the virus right now. Have I, uh, you heard my intro there, have I misrepresented what we know and don't at at this point in my intro, or did I miss any key relevant facts there? No, Brad, I think you're right on the ball. I think you you got it right. We, we we, We are in a situation where I would call this the crisis mode. We need to be doing something like yesterday. As noted, we we don't have any cures or treatments or vaccines right now. Uh, With states seemingly flinging the doors open again, doctor, it seems to me, because it it seems in truth, you know, beyond some expanded ICU capacity in some places or increased uh, supply chain for uh, personal protective equipment, uh, without a treatment or a cure or vaccine or, or even widespread contact tracing programs in place, aren't we pretty much just back at the same place that we were back uh, when we started the lockdowns in March or April, or or am I the one who is insane here? Actually, I think we are in a worse situation now because we have a lot of infection people in the community that we didn't have earlier on. So it's 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 a uh, it's I would say phase two in that regard that we have a lot more uh, people who are infectious who mm-hmm. are shedding the virus than when we had started earlier on. The uh, a lot of the people who are are, are talking about this uh, and people, as a matter of fact, I've seen people who even are not who do not necessarily have a, a political uh, a dog in the hunt here have been describing this as a second wave. If you look at the numbers again, I'm not an epidemiologist, but if you look at the numbers, this does not seem to be a second wave. This seems to be the same wave continuing and growing, particularly in many places, uh, you know, where where it didn't spread immediately. Uh, is this a second wave or is this still the same wave and we're sort of uh, giving up as you see it, doctor? We haven't even peaked with the first wave yet, so I'm not sure. Um, again, I have to uh, be clear. Every geographical region has its own uh, specific epidemiology and uh, spread. Mm-hmm. For, when I'm talking about us not going through the first wave yet, I'm talking about Arizona. Mm-hmm. What we had actually projected and predicted was we would get to the peak around the end of June. Mm-hmm. If everything had gone the way we had predicted with all the uh, physical distancing in place, stay-at-home orders and everything. But when the stay-at-home orders uh, were not followed through, and we started much earlier, that peak actually came much, much earlier. And we are still continuing up on that wave. We have not come down yet. So we have not even completed our first wave uh, here in Arizona. The uh, concerns you note about uh, Arizona, and I mentioned more about the case growth and the spread, uh, it looks to me uh, a lot in many ways like what we are seeing now in other large uh, states. And I know you say that, you know, geographically it's different in every area. But 
Other states that took a similar hands-off approach to reopening with few restrictions in place, uh, like Texas and Florida and Georgia, North Carolina, Oklahoma, even to some extent in California, though it seems that the increase here in California may actually be tied to an increase in testing uh, numbers to some extent. Is Arizona somehow unique in the concerns that that you are facing? Uh, and, and has anything, by the way, changed for the better there since that uh, TPM story that I cited from Friday? Unfortunately, no. I am not even sure that I would uh, claim that we're doing that great a job with testing. If you look at it, we are number 42 among all states in terms of testing rates. Mm. So we haven't even gotten to the level where we can say, you know, our testing rates are good, mm-hmm. and that's why we are seeing all these cases. Um, there's a lot lot to be done, even in terms of testing, and we're not even mentioning contact tracing yet. That's practically non-existent, and that's a huge concern. If, if we were really smart, as we were releasing the stay-at-home orders, we would have put testing and trace contact tracing in place before we allowed people to come out. So that way we could keep the whole thing under control. We didn't do that. We had a, we had a stay-at-home order to flatten the curve. We were trying to do that, and we didn't even do the things that we were supposed to do based on the CDC guidelines as to when we should be reopening. Mm-hmm. And we didn't connect it to increasing and ramping up our testing and our contact tracing, and here we are. What is your explanation for what uh, Governor Doug Ducey did? As I mentioned, I think it was early last month. It was the same day that Donald Trump came to town. um, And uh, suddenly he announced that uh, the state would be opening. And I I, I think even a week or two before his uh, earlier plans to do so. What do you attribute that to? I think at some point, people need to start believing in science, is all I can say. Mm -hmm. We have the data, we have the evidence, and the science is pretty clear about this. We were not ready, we should not have. And I cannot speak for the governor, so Mm -hmm. he, he must have his own reasons why he did it. But as an epidemiologist and having trained in this, and I'm sure my colleagues would voice the same thing, we were not ready and we should not have opened. You know, I noted uh, that the data and statistics, of course, can be cherry picked. And so, you know, I want to get a sense, uh, you know, people may be listening to this uh, conversation and think, well, he found an epidemiologist who tends to agree with him. Is there a substantive debate within the epidemiologist community about what is going on here? What is the best way to proceed? And if folks like Pence and Trump and the various uh, governors, uh, you know, saying that it's either behind us or it's not happening, or even if it is, it's more dangerous to not just open for business uh, and and learn to live with whatever may come. Is there a substantive debate among epidemiologists about how to proceed here? Is there is there any are there voices like those we are hearing on Fox News telling us that oh it's it's safer it's better to just ultimately fling open the doors and hope for herd immunity to show up at some point. Okay, so I I don't have a short answer for this. You have to bear with me. Mm -hmm. I need to present you the context in in order to answer this. Okay. I know everybody keeps saying that it's the testing, and that's why you're seeing these numbers. But I think what we are seeing is the number of hospitalizations. And when I talk about context, 
this virus is unprecedented in the combination of how easily transmissible it is mm-hmm. and in terms of the range of symptoms you have, which is from none at all to deadly, where you land up going into an ICU. At the same time, we also have a very highly susceptible population. Almost 95% of our population is still susceptible. Mm-hmm. So there is a potential for continued exponential growth in cases. We are still at least a year away from vaccine, no matter what people tell you. The only therapeutic that is currently available, which is in clinical trials, is remdesivir. And today we have dexamethasone. The paper is going to come out, but not enough. So what are our options? You mentioned herd immunity. Mm -hmm. When we talk about herd immunity, it took us two years and three waves infecting 500 million people, killing about 50 to 100 million people to reach herd immunity for the 1918 uh, influenza, which Mm -hmm. we call the Spanish uh, influenza, which is a misnomer, Mm -hmm. the 1918 influenza. But we are much better prepared now to manage the medical implications of the pandemic but an uncontrolled strategy, if we assumed a 1% fatality, uh, fatality rate, would still result in nearly 2 million deaths in the United States. And, that, and it's still unlikely that with that, we would reach the 60 to 70% herd immunity threshold that we would need. Mm-hmm. So I don't think this argument about herd immunity is going to work. So what's the next option? Virus containment? Well, the 2003-2004 SARS epidemic, the virus containment using epi measures such as isolation of the sick, quarantining of the contacts, and implementing social controls where we were limiting uh, the damage, led to 8,000 SARS cases globally and about 750 deaths. But because of an uncoordinated and poorly managed COVID response that we are having right now, Again, this option is no longer available to us. Mm. So what is left? Stay at home uh, or shutdown orders? Um, Now, when we think about that, a Nature article actually suggested shutdown orders prevented about 60 million novel corona case Mm -hmm. infections in the United States. Mm -hmm. And 285 million corona cases in China. While this seems like a good investment, it depends on how you look at it. Mm -hmm. If we had used the period of the shutdown to put comprehensive testing and tracing protocols, like I said, in place, this investment would have paid off in the long run. Mm -hmm. But we failed to do that. So we only delayed the day of reckoning for us. Mm. So there is a lot of disagreement about the cost of delaying these infections. Uh, One of the economists from Virginia Tech Um, and his colleagues, they calculated and they said the loss in U.S. GDP between March 19th and April 15th was roughly about $1.15 trillion. Mm -hmm. That's about 26% of GDP compared to the prior year. Mm. So when we think about it, benefits of stay-at-home order or their reinstitution, well, we're going to buy time, and uh, we're going to buy time for developing the infrastructure to do a comprehensive testing and contact tracing, if we can put that in place. We can buy time for developing the vaccines and therapeutics so that we are not exposing our susceptibles. And we can preserve our healthcare capacity in order to maintain a reasonable standard of care for our patients. That, those are the things we need to think about. Mm-hmm. 
And I presume that is, uh, as the question was generally, is there a debate among epidemiologists? Is there uh, generally agreement among the group that uh, that that those are our choices and those that's what we have to deal with at this point? We basically have closed off all of the other options. Well, the only thing we can think about at this point is, again, because of how heterogeneous the the virus prevalence is in each of the communities, you have the hotspots. You can't have the same orders in those hotspots as we would have in other communities. Mm -hmm. So masks is something that all of us in public health are pushing for. You know, as you continue to do everything else, maintaining physical distance, uh, washing your hands, staying at home if you're sick, Masks. Masks are a lowest hanging fruit and one of the most economical interventions one can think about. And if all of us did it, we can dramatically bring down the number of infections. Uh, are there still no masking mandates in the state of Arizona? Oh, my God. You, have, you, you will not believe. I, I go out <laughs> to do my grocery shopping once every three weeks. Uh-huh. And when I went out, I felt like I was in the pre-COVID era. Oh. People just seemed like nothing had happened. People were sitting at the coffee shop, sitting outside in the tables. There was no concept of physical distancing. We were probably like one or two of us who had a mask on, and we looked like the outliers. That is, so I think that sense of uh, risk is not there at all here in, in the communities that I'm seeing. That, that, that is absolutely terrifying uh, in one sense. In another sense, I, I really appreciate you confirming this because I've been saying this for the past uh, couple of weeks, that there are people out there sort of pretending this away, and that just seems to be insane and wrong and is going to make things worse, not better. Um, so, you know, to hear those same concerns from someone who actually knows what they're talking about uh, is actually, ironically, a, a bit of a relief. How, how uh, that I'm not insane, at least, how concerned should we be about um, outbreaks uh, following the uh, huge protests around the country after the police killing of George Floyd in Minneapolis? And uh, sort of in, in a related question, would you advise against the president's rally set for Tulsa on Saturday? You know, the, the the protests that are happening, I'm, I'm, I'm really sorry about all the killings that are happening, and, and, and it's a concern to all of us. We do feel for what, what is happening. At the same time, I think a lot of us would be concerned about the spike in cases, especially because when you're in protests and when you're shouting, the risk of transmission is much higher mm-hmm. because of the aerosol infection. Yeah. So if you're not masking and you're in such close proximity and shouting um, at, at that high level, the risk of picking up an infection is going to be high. And this virus is nonpartisan. It doesn't, it doesn't care which party you belong to. It's going to come to you if you open, a, open the door. And that's what I keep telling people. It, it, it's, it's a house guest. If you invite, it will come in. Mm. So try not to invite it into your house. And that's how you can do is making sure that, you know, you, you don't go into a, a crowded environment. You, you, you protect yourself. So, no, I don't think it's a good idea for us to be having 20,000 people in a closed-door environment signing off their liability to say, okay, I'm not responsible if you get COVID. Because there is going to be a very high risk of transmission there. And that I would call a super spreader into a, a event. When you have that kind of things happening, those are the places where 
spread is going to happen very quickly. Is is there any uh, substantive difference between a large gathering like that, uh, whether it's indoors versus outdoors? It's if if you have to do harm reduction, if you absolutely going to do it, then yes, we would we would suggest you do it outdoors because mm-hmm. the likelihood that you will be in such a congested environment mm-hmm. is much lower. And then uh, in the outdoors, the likelihood of spread is also a, a tad bit lower than if, when you're in a closed door setting like that. Uh, Dr. Pranima Madivanan, I've got just another question or two for you here. There was uh, some potentially good news on Tuesday about uh, an encouraging number of uh, of uh, tests of a new steroid treatment for those critically yes. ill with COVID-19. I don't know if you've had time to look at that yes. test yet, but uh, should that offer us any encouragement or is it not unlike those uh, preliminary reports we saw a few weeks back, you know, on a new vaccine from Moderna a few weeks ago that... Uh, made the stock market go crazy, but then proved to be more uh, hype than actual hope? Uh, I, I think you're talking about the dexamethasone, which is the steroid uh, mm-hmm. that is being used among hospitalized patients. Mm-hmm. Um, the The paper is not out yet, so we don't have much details about it. But mm-hmm. yes, it what they have found is it it is able to reduce the number of corona deaths. Dexamethasone is a steroid that we've had all along, and we use it all over the world. It's it's um, it's 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 uh, anti-inflammatory. But what would be interesting for me is to see the data actually, mm-hmm. who got it, and how are the samples. It, it's the same story as the hydroxychloroquine in the French study. I want to look at the paper first before I can really comment on it. But it's good news. People are talking about it. I'm curious. I want to read the paper first. Uh, how how ridiculously responsible of you, doctor. Uh, finally, I, I don't want to be too extreme here, uh, but the Institute for Health Metrics and Evaluation at uh, University of Washington, uh, which has been very conservative in their prediction numbers, having re- having needed to revise them up a number of times, well, they did so again today to predict that we will see now more than 200,000 deaths in the U.S. by the beginning of October on our current trajectory. 200,000 deaths um, from the uh, IHMEs. So far, very conservative estimates. Given that I am not paid uh, to keep the public safe, uh, but even I can read charts and scientific data, uh, it seems to me that some of the denialist public officials... Uh, You know, uh, talking about that governor in Oklahoma, even your governor in Arizona there, uh, that in, you know, we see these numbers, we see these warnings. It seems to me that they are, in effect, signing death warrants uh, akin to mass murder when we're talking about 200,000 deaths, mass murder of their own constituents, ultimately, uh, by lying to them about infection rates and failing to mandate simple practices like wearing masks. Is that a, a too extreme way to to look at this? Because um, I'm having trouble not doing so when I hear those statements from those uh, those governors and those public officials and so forth. Well, I think you know history is going to remember this, and you know we'll have to com- confront with what we are doing right now. My biggest concern here in Arizona is Phoenix. Um, we have almost fifty percent of the entire state of Arizona cases right here in Phoenix. Uh, but we don't have enough hospital beds for them. And are we going to come to a state like situation like in Italy where we have to decide who gets a ventilator and who's going to die? 
And we don't have to be in that situation. We are one of the richest countries in the world, and we should be able to take care of our weakest and the poorest. And if we don't do that, I, I don't know with what face we can go back to our constituents and say, vote for me again. In Arizona, we are even confronting the truth because they keep saying, our governor says we have enough hospital beds, mm -hmm. but he is not telling us that when you say enough hospital beds, so those are all over the state. It's not like you're going to airlift somebody who needs a ventilator in Phoenix to Yuma. Yep. So when you start looking at the geographical spread, we, we have a crisis situation right now in Phoenix. And, and if he is smart, he would close out the borders to Phoenix like yesterday. We and that's not happening. This is just my personal opinion. Mm -hmm. So I'm not representing anybody. And, and the reason I say that is, for example, um, we have about 19,000 cases in Maricopa County, which is where Phoenix is. Mm -hmm. And the number of cases to date in the whole state of Arizona is about 36,000. So it's almost like half of those cases are in Maricopa, which is in Phoenix. Now, if we say roughly 10% of these cases are going to get hospitalized, that means our current average would be about 1,300 new cases each day would be, would be assumed to result about 130 cases would need to be hospitalized. So we don't have that kind of bed capacity in Phoenix. The biggest challenge is if you have about 1,100 ICU beds, and every day you're going to need about 130, you're going to max out in the next one week. And, and worse is staffing. How are you going to staff? You don't have enough personnel to staff, even if you bring in all these extra ventilators and extra beds. Mm -hmm. You don't have enough personnel. That's the concern for me. And I yeah. don't think we are talking about it, about how hyper-local this whole situation is and when they just generally say, oh, Arizona has enough testing, Arizona has enough hospitals mm -hmm. or beds. They need to be where you need it. Yes. I'm concerned that same story is going on in a whole bunch of different states, not unlike uh, Arizona, where you have these, you know, clusters like in, in Tulsa. You're, you're a breath of fresh air saying some of this stuff that I've been saying for, for now a long time. Glad to hear uh, someone like you uh, uh, saying the exact same thing in many ways. I guess you're just looking at the same data that we're looking at, <laughs> and that's it. And we're looking at it the way you're supposed to look at it. That's what I thought. That's what I hoped. Dr. Purnima Madivanan is an infectious disease epidemiologist and associate professor in health promotion sciences at the Mel and Enid Zuckerman College of Public Health at University of Arizona in Tucson, where she is the director of the Global Health Training Program. Dr. Madivanan, really appreciate your time with us today. Hope you won't mind if we bother you again in the future. Thank you, Brad, for having me. I'm happy to come back and talk to you about what I know. Thank you so much. Okay, a quick break, and we're back with uh, something or other, plus uh, Desi Doyen will be here a little <laughs> bit later with the Green News Report. Hi, Des. Hi, try to cheer you up. Yeah, good luck with that. Exactly. All right, this is the Bradcast. I'm Brad Friedman. Don't touch that dial. Hey, this is Brad. If you haven't noticed by now, it's no easy feat finding facts, real facts, not alternative facts, over your public airwaves. We try to bring you real facts, truth, and clarity without fear or favor each and every day on the broadcast. 
but we need your help to do it. If you enjoy the show and or get something from it, please give back a bit, if you can, by visiting us at bradblog.com donate. Your support helps Desi and me continue to bring you real, independent, progressive news five days a week over your public airwaves. We simply can't do it without your help, and that help is needed more now than ever. Please stop by bradblog.com donate today to make a one-time donation or, even better, automated monthly support. It'll take you about 60 seconds, and you can rest easy knowing that we'll be here every day making sense of it all, or at least trying to. That's bradblog.com donate, and thanks. Stairway to heaven ain't going to cheer anyone up, <laughs> Desi Toya. Well, this is true. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. That was uh, a sobering conversation, I thought, Desiree, with uh, Pranima Madivan in there. Yes. Um, you know, it's always good. To, uh, as far as I'm concerned, it's always good to know what the facts are and to have a, you know, you can't you can't change anything until you face it, I think is the saying. Well, and nothing can be changed until it is faced. And frankly, nothing is being faced as she True. is making clear, at least not by our leadership, uh, certainly at the federal level and at a whole bunch of state levels. And we ran a little bit long there, uh, but I wanted to, uh, you know, it's been driving me kind of nuts over the past couple of weeks as states have been opening up and as ev everybody has been, you know, pretending that this is fine. Everything is behind us. It is decidedly not. And um, so to have, uh, you know, to hear an epidemiologist uh, say exactly that, and uh, particularly in a state like Arizona, which is a very, very hot spot right now, letting uh, people know that, no, they, they, we're talking about the same things in Arizona that we were talking about, what, two or three months ago in New York, that they may run out of beds. And they may have Italy. to build ho field hospitals. Right. They may have to choose between, like in Italy, keeping people alive or... They've become fast and loose with the facts, and the and uh, the Republicans and President Trump are trying to push through the idea that hey, it's you know, let's just be complacent about all the dead people. I had mentioned there at the end of my uh, conversation uh, with the doctor uh, that uh, this new model, this well, this old model that has been revised now with new numbers to predict. Uh, some 200,000 U.S. deaths from coronavirus by October 1, 200,000. CNN reports a mix of early reopenings and disregard for personal safety measures have prompted researchers to increase their projections of COVID-19 deaths this summer. One model frequently cited by the White House uh, from the Institute for Health Metrics and Evaluation at the University of Washington now predicts 200,000 U.S. deaths from coronavirus by October 1. That would mean an average daily death toll of more than 840 Americans every single day since February 6th. That's the date of the very first known U.S. death linked to COVID-19. Ali Muqtad, one of the creators of the model, said increased mobility and premature relaxation of social distancing led to more infections. And we see it in Florida, Arizona and other states. He said this means more projected deaths. 
CNN's Dr. Sanjay Gupta uh, added, sadly, I think this 200,000 number may be an underprediction oh, based dear. on what we are starting to see in several states across the country. More than 2 million Americans have been effect- infected by the virus. More than 116,125 have died, according to the data from the similarly conservative Johns Hopkins University. 18 states are now seeing upward trends in newly reported cases from one week to the next. And yes, some are due to increased testing, but most are seeing increased Percentage rates of positive tests, no matter the number of tests. So that state, of, that uh, list of 18 states where your numbers are increasing, not decreasing, include California, Oregon, Nevada, Arizona, Montana, Wyoming, Texas, Oklahoma, Arkansas, Louisiana, Mississippi, Alabama, Georgia, Florida, South Carolina, North Carolina, Alaska, and Hawaii. In all of those states, the rates are increasing right now. Ten states are seeing steady numbers of uh, newly reported cases, plateaus, if you will, not rises, but plateaus in Washington state, Utah, South Dakota, Kansas, Iowa, Tennessee, Ohio, West Virginia, Maine and Rhode Island. So that is a majority of states, 28 states, seeing no decrease at all or in most of them seeing numbers go up right now, not down. We're moving in the wrong direction. And in some of those states, as in Arizona and Texas, seriously so. And in Florida, seriously in the wrong direction. Now, Dr. Anthony Fauci says it's true the testing has improved. He said, but, quote, when you start seeing more hospitalizations, that's a surefire sign that you're in a situation where you are going in the wrong direction. Uh, In the past week, at least 12 states have seen higher rates of COVID-19 hospitalizations, not hospitalizations for other things, as was it Pence or Trump had uh, suggested. I think it was uh, Pence for other things, elective surgeries. That's why it's going up. I mean, it is one lie after another. We've come to expect that, obviously, from this administration. They have been doing it for years. But now... These lies are goddamn deadly, deadly. And, uh, you know, I do not think it's too extreme to describe it as mass murder. If you know these actions you are taking are going to result in tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of people dying. Isn't that murder? I mean, I, I don't know what else to call it at this point. They could take another action, but they're not. They're choosing not to. True. They could just basically stop testing and stop announcing and then we'd have no problem at all. Right. That's kind of the approach that they have. That's what Donald Trump says. Yeah. No, no more testing. We wouldn't have any more cases. Yeah. If a tree falls in the forest and Trump doesn't hear it personally, then clearly it made no sound. All right. Very quickly, before we get to your uh, green news report, uh, this uh, broke just before we uh, went to air here today. It looks like John Bolton's new book will now become an even bigger bestseller. The Justice Department, the wholly corrupted, once respected, now complete political tool for Donald Trump, incredibly enough, filed a lawsuit Tuesday seeking to block the release of a book by former White House National Security Security Advisor John Bolton, asserting that his much-anticipated memoir contains classified material. 
The move sets up a legal showdown, according to The Washington Post, between President Trump and his longtime conservative foreign policy hand, who alleges in his book that the president committed, quote, Ukraine-like transgressions in a number of foreign policy decisions. The room where it happened, a White House memoir, is to go on sale, is due to go on sale on June 23, and probably just sold a whole hell of a lot more books with this lawsuit, I would say. It has already been shipped to distribution centers across the country, so it's already out there and in the wild, if you will. And I suspect that even if it is held up somehow by this lawsuit, and that's a big if, I suspect it's going to leak out anyway. And now, with extra added attention. Smartly done, Donald. The suit was filed in U.S. District Court in D.C. It accuses Bolton of breach of contract because apparently uh, the White House now forces people to sign non-disclosure agreements when they work at the White House. It asked the court to prohibit Bolton from disclosing any information in the book or releasing it in in any uh, form. Bolton's attorney has said the memoir does not contain any classified material. His uh, publisher says the former national security advisor spent months working with the White House to revise the manuscript. But Trump told reporters on Monday that it was highly inappropriate for Bolton to write a book. Uh, Somebody said he went out and wrote a book. If he wrote a book, I can't imagine that he can because that's highly classified information, even conversations with me. Uh, They're highly classified. I told that to the attorney general before. I will consider every conversation with me as president highly classified. So that would mean that if he wrote a book and if if the book gets out, he's broken the law. And I would think that he would have criminal problems. I hope so. Well, you can keep hoping, sir. (laughs) Uh, But I don't think the uh, courts are going to look too fondly on prior restraint, which is, you know, before someone says something, Um, uh, restraining the freedom of speech before it has even been said. So uh, good luck with that strategy. It might work. It might hope to uh, delay everything. And really, that's what all of this is about. It's just trying to keep it from coming out. Before the election. Correct. Uh, So good luck with that, Mr. President. You're not pathetic at all. Quick break, and we're back (laughs) with Desi Doyen and the Green News Report. I'm Brad Friedman. This is the Bradcast. What the public hears on the public airwaves matters. At the Bradcast, we do our best to bring you accurate news and analysis on the issues that actually matter. And we do it all independently, without corporate or political influence. But we can't do it without you, now more than ever. Please help us stay on your public airwaves by going to bradblog.com slash donate to help keep us going. That's bradblog.com slash donate. And thanks. Well, there you go. Yeah. That's cheerier music. <laughs> well done. Yep. And I'm sure that means uh, you've got nothing but cheery stories for us. You're making a face. I know. No? Well, Not we'll so see cheery. What <laughs> In our latest Green News Report. The only purpose this pipeline ultimately will serve 
is to boost the profits of its developers. U.S. Supreme Court clears the way for controversial fracked gas pipeline. Once it's out in the environment, um, it might get smaller and smaller, and even to the point where it's unseen by the human eye, but it still persists in the environment. Microplastics are raining down on our national parks. Plus, foods like bacon and donuts previously outlawed would be fair game to lure and shoot brown bears. Trump administration accelerates resource extraction and cruel wildlife hunting practices on the public's lands. Mmm, bacon and donuts. All of those stories and more straight ahead from Bradblog.com. I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyan. Stand by for six minutes of independent green news, politics, analysis, and snarky comment. You can't build a wall high enough around your home. You keep pollution out. That's fine, Joe. But can you build a high enough wall around the Electoral College to keep Donald Trump out? That's all we really want to know. This is your Green News Report. Okay, Desi Doyen, two big rulings from the U.S. Supreme Court regarding the environment. Oh, indeed. A major ruling from the stolen U.S. Supreme Court on Monday. In a blow to conservationists and landowners, the Supreme Court cleared the way for the controversial proposed Atlantic Coast Pipeline, a fracked natural gas project to be built underneath the Appalachian Trail in Virginia. The court overturned a lower court ruling deciding 7-2 to two that yes, the Forest Service does have the authority to approve permits even on protected national parks. Lands. The pipeline itself still has more permitting battles ahead, but legal experts say this ruling could make pipelines in other national parks more likely. On the plus side for the environment, the Supreme Court allowed to stand a lower court ruling that blocked gold miners in Oregon from using a controversial extraction technique called suction dredge mining in federally protected streams. It's effectively vacuuming riverbeds to Mm. extract gold, degrading water quality and habitat. Water law experts say the ruling could have broad implications for other Clean Water Act regulations governing mining. Meanwhile, the Trump administration is racing the red light to roll back as many environmental and public health protections as possible before the November presidential election. The red light of him getting thrown out of office? One hopes. We'll see. Trump Agriculture Secretary Sonny Perdue issued a broad memo on Friday directing the U.S. Forest Service to prioritize the extraction of natural resources from the public's lands, national forests, and grasslands. The memo makes it clear that resource exploitation, logging, mining, drilling, and grazing is now the primary focus of the Forest Service, and any environmental reviews that are required by law should be curtailed and expedited. So the job of the Forest Service is not to protect the forest, it's to make it business-friendly? It's to manage the forest, but they're turning it into a smash-and-grab, it seems, to strip the place before they get kicked out. Racing the red light. The Trump administration has also overturned an Obama-era ban on cruel hunting practices, like using donuts soaked in bacon grease to bait hibernating bears out from their dens to kill them, shooting swimming caribou from a boat, and targeting wild animals from airplanes. That is all legal again. 
And a heads up for voters in Florida, Politico reports that the Trump Interior Department plans to fulfill yet another item on the oil and gas industry's wish list by expanding drilling off the coast of Florida, even though it's mightily opposed by both Democrats and Republicans in the state because oil spills are bad for tourism. The trick is that Trump plans to hold off on the announcement until after the November election (laughs) to avoid blowback in a swing state. Uh, I don't even want to think what's going to happen between November 3rd and January 20th of next year if Donald Trump loses this election. In other news... But I do enjoy thinking about him losing this election. In other news, microplastic rain is pouring down on our national parks. That's according to a new Utah State University study that estimates more than a 1,000 tons of tiny airborne fragments of non-biodegradable plastic, the equivalent of 130 million plastic water bottles, rains down each year on national parks and wilderness in the American West alone. Really? Transported from urban areas on air currents like dust, then washed out by rain into soil and water. The researchers say they were surprised, trying to study how wind blows nutrients into ecosystems, but instead they found plastics in every single sample. Wow. Plastics raining from the sky. Finally, some good news, at least for Germany. Germany has set a target for all of its gas stations to install electric car chargers, and it's putting up funding to help build out a national electric vehicle charging network. It's a lifeline for gas station owners to be able to survive the transition to all electric cars and it's a major component of Germany's coronavirus recovery plan to invest in green infrastructure to create jobs while solving climate change. Very cool. Why does all the good stuff always happen in Germany? Uh, Check that. For much more on all of these stories and the ones we couldn't get to today, please check out our website at greennews.bradblog.com. Find, follow, and share us planet-wide on the Facebooks and the Twitters at Green News Report. I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyan. And this has been your Green News Report. I need some good news, baby. It's like the world's gone crazy. Give me some good news, baby. Give it to me. Give it to me. I need some good news. Well, if you're looking for the good news, you've come to the entirely wrong place. An <laughs> entirely wrong country. Yeah, exactly. Apparently, Germany's got it going, though. Yeah, so they that's do. Good. There is that. Thank you very much, Desi Doyan. Uh, let's see, what other good news do we have? Well, the good news is the broadcast is over for today, <laughs> so you can rest easy. My thanks to our producer, Tessie Doyen, to my guest today, Dr. Purnima Madivanan of the University of Arizona, and to all of you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. If you missed any portion of today's show, uh, you can download it anytime for free at bradblog.com. And I got to tell you, You know, I haven't gone back to listen to it yet, but that interview with the doctor, I think a lot of people need to hear it. I think you should share it with your friends and family, particularly your friends and family that watch Fox News. Just saying. You can download it for free at bradblog.com. That's a service that is made possible by those of you kind enough to stop by bradblog.com slash donate where you can leave a one-time donation of any amount you like or you can sign up for a uh, monthly uh, subscription pledge for any amount you like as well. That is greatly appreciated. It is the only thing that helps keep us on your public airwaves so we can keep cheering you up day after day after day. (laughs) Or something like that. But also remember, it also helps us to bring this kind of programming to stations across the country. So it not only helps it on your local station, but across the country everywhere. 
Yes, indeed. You can drop me email if you like. I am bradcast at bradblog.com, and you will find me on the Facebooks and the Twitters at the Brad Blog. I will see you here, see you there, until I see you here again next time on the radio. I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world. Good.